0: G'day everyone, I'm Luke Tipple. Happy Shark Week and welcome to The Daily Bite, the show where we go behind the scenes with the stars of Shark Week and talk about one of our favourite subjects, sharks. Today we're welcoming back Dr. Austin Gallagher to chat about his research trip with a pimple-popping special guest. Let's check it out. One reason sharks have not only survived for more than 400 million years but have thrived is their skin. It's a thick, complex suit of armor that not only protects them from predators, but also has remarkable ways of staying clean and healthy.
1: Which makes me wonder, can we learn from these shark skin secrets and apply them in a way to help our own skin? And of course, to answer one of my most important questions. Do sharks get pimples?
0: Cause if they do, I'm ready to pop them. And that looks like some fun in Turks and Caicos. Dr. Austin Gallagher, welcome back to The Daily Bite, mate. Good to see you, Luke. Thanks for having me, man. So uh, last time we chatted to you, you were hanging out a few hundred feet under the water in Bahamas in uh, submarines, getting beaten about by tiger sharks. And now you're uh, popping pimples in the Turks and Caicos. What brought that on?
1: It's a great question. And we've really been trying to find new places to expand our research uh, in the general Caribbean. And ironically enough, it's the tiger sharks again that took us down to Turks and Caicos through some of the movements we saw uh, from Bahamas sharks. And we began our work in Turks and Caicos about a year and a half ago. And one of the things, Luke, that we learned was that this place is loaded with sharks. It's really an incredible place to do work. So it made a lot of sense for us to start uh, doing some of our investigations for Shark Week down there.
0: That's awesome. Um, Obviously, that wasn't covered in the show, but talk to me about the tiger sharks and the movements up there.
1: Sure. So The Turks and Caicos is actually kind of part of the Bahamas. It's sort of this general region called the Lucayan Sea or the Lucayan Archipelago. And as we know from all the work that we've done together in the Bahamas, you know, you have these really shallow banks that formed over many ice ages, and then you have all these islands that are scattered about that. Turks and Caicos, the same thing, except it's a lot smaller, Uh, just kind of one or two small sets of islands. And it's just southeast, about 150 miles southeast of the southern part of the Bahamas. So it's right in the range of a lot of the southerly movements of our tiger sharks. We saw them going down there, and we said we got to get down there and see what's going on. Is it, uh, you know, a refuge for tiger sharks? And then when we started doing underwater camera surveys, we learned that it wasn't just tigers; that it it's really healthy, you know, overall population of sharks there, which is you know really awesome.
0: So in the, um, I, I've been down there, and I saw on the, you know, on the footage from the show. Um, you know, it's a lot of kind of like fringing reef type area and the reef looked like it was in kind of poor condition. Is that just where you were diving or is it just kind of a regional thing down there?
1: Well, actually, the reefs uh, in general in Turks are pretty good. In fact, they are? they're okay. generally much better than the Bahamas. Yeah, so I think a couple of the dive sites that we filmed on during that show maybe aren't as great as some of the other ones. Mm. But, you know, in general, you know, Turks and Caicos is kind of like the French Polynesia if Bahamas is the Hawaii, you know, so just a lot less people, more remote, less tourists. And because of that, you have a, a generally healthier ecosystem. And some of the healthiest reefs I've seen in the Caribbean period are actually in Turks and Caicos.
0: That's amazing. So that kind of leads to the next question of you know, why the tiger sharks will be traveling down. Do you think they're following, you know, the, the water temperatures or food availability or just, you know, sort of more social migrations?
1: Good question. What I think it is relates to habitat. You know, one of the things that I've learned more over the years is that it really always comes back to habitat. And for tiger sharks, we know that they do migrations, they do these long distance journeys and they'll swim over really deep water, but they really are a shallow water shark and they love shallow banks and they love seagrass meadows. We know that from Tiger Beach, we know that from Australia, where you're from, the west coast of Australia. To kick us is the same thing. You know, I remember looking at it at this map and seeing this beautiful, shallow seagrass bank that's, you know, probably 50, 60 square miles. And that's where it's just loaded with tiger sharks there. And then it drops off, just like it does in the Bahamas, to really deep water. So um, I do think there are some connections between Bermuda, Bahamas, and Turks, but it seems like it's only the females that are doing that. Mm. So,
0: how long have you been operating down there? You said you have about a year now. Yeah, we started uh, in earnest
1: in September 2020, a little delayed obviously because of mm. you know, the global pandemic, but you know, we were able to really get a lot of work done there. I think we've done six or seven research expeditions and the big project that we've been working on for starters was a national survey of the shark and ray populations that was sort of contracted by the government of, of the Turks and Caicos because they want to create a big protected area, very similar to what we see in the Bahamas, mm but they had no baseline data. So that's why they brought us in. And, you know, we started collecting some of that information and one thing led to the other. Then we started finding, you know, tiger sharks, hammerheads. And I will be honest, Luke, I think the Turks and Caicos could actually give the Bahamas a run for its money in terms of the overall abundance and diversity of sharks.
0: Wow. I mean, uh, before we start sending people down there though, we should probably get that area protected. Are there no, are there no protections at all against, you know, shark and ray fishing down there?
1: There are some right now that are, you know, that are limiting certain types of commercial fishing. Okay. Um, however, there is still some local consumption that's allowed and, you know, it's very lax in terms of how it's being managed. I think really what these countries in the Caribbean place where I do a lot of work, starting to realize now is that marine protected areas are not just great for the environment and obviously for the species, mm. but they can be marketing tools as well. And totally. these countries, you know, you know that from the Shark, Shark Free Marina initiative. Yeah. You know, these countries rely so heavily on tourism that if there aren't healthy, clean reefs there. Sharks are a big part of that. You know, their tourism products going to really suffer.
0: Yeah. I mean, when you look at Bahamas and you look at, you know, several studies that have come out both on a biological and also financial standpoint, when, you know, the value of a single shark is put in the, you know, somewhat debatable, but hundreds of thousands of dollars to the local economy, um, it, it really kind of makes sense for for countries like Turks to also kind of adopt that model if it is available to them. And if you say that those sharks are there and you're able to establish the seasonality of those aggregations, um, it could be really onto something down there. Is there, um, is there foreign fishing influ- influence in the area as well?
1: Very, very low levels of foreign fishing. So. Yeah, it's, it's almost kind of like this oasis in the middle of the, you know, middle northern Caribbean. And I'm really fortunate to work there and, and to come into a place where, you know, not a lot of work had been done previously, which is kind of exciting because you can, you know, being the first isn't always the most important thing, but being able to describe and explore is, I think, the most important, exciting part of science.
0: So when uh, Discovery approached you this year and said, hey, we've got Dr. Pimple Popper, she wants to go down and, and see some sharks. Um, did you suggest Turks as the location because you are there doing your research already?
1: Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I think that, you know, with all the shows and the programming and productions, you know, over the last 18 months, you know, we've all had to pivot and be very flexible with, mm-hmm. you know, rules and and travel bans and openings and closings and and all these things. So we've had to be really adaptive. Um, and, you know, it looked like the Bahamas, which is, you know, ground zero for a lot of you know, great productions for, for Shark Week that we've done, you know, was going to be, you know, maybe a little bit more challenging this year for a variety of different reasons, some of the ones that I just listed. So I was talking with, you know, the various production companies for this show and I suggested Turks and I said, look, I was actually down there on an expedition when, you know, I said, I think this is something we should really look at. And we we're able to, you know, bring uh, a couple productions down there this year, actually, including Pimple Popper. And you know, film some really amazing stuff that's never been seen before.
0: Yeah, it's it's uh, it's always great to see new locations get covered uh, in Shark Week programming. Not just for you know the viewer experience, but also for our knowledge of different areas, um, which I think is amazing. Um, how were her dive skills when she got down here?
1: Sandra was great. Uh, I was yeah. so much fun to work with her. She has incredible energy. She's obviously incredible on camera. Mm. She does a lot of that with her show, Dr. Pimple Popper, but she just brought brought a great energy and she was willing to try everything. She had dove before, so she was very comfortable in the water. Um, Obviously, anytime someone's using full face mask, you know, for the first time there's a little bit of a learning curve there, but she did really well and um, she was awesome. So, you know, after the first couple dives, she was a pro and it was good because those sharks down in Turks and Caicos and we mostly saw reef sharks on this show but uh they're not used to people per se there's no baiting or chumming that happens there naturally like we see in certain places in the bahamas so they're very curious they're very bold um and you know they they see humans in a different way than they do in places like the bahamas so there are a few really close calls for sure yeah
0: it actually looked like it yeah and uh the reef sharks are certainly uh, seem to be pretty amped up in at least a few of those uh, scenarios, perhaps with tidal movement or bait in the water. Or um, is, is that what you're seeing down there? Definitely, yeah. I mean, yeah. I'll, I'll be honest
1: with you. Uh, dove with a lot of big sharks, you know, over the years. And reef sharks are the ones I trust the least. They're yeah. not the biggest, the baddest, the scariest, but they're the most unpredictable. They live, you know, a really rough and tumble life. There is usually multiple reef sharks on a given reef. So they're always in competition with one another. Mm -hmm. So you really got to watch yourself with reef sharks, honestly. Um, And there were a few situations on the show that were really sketchy. There was this one dive where there was big tidal flux and all this, you know, sand was coming off the bank, visibility dropped and the sharks know that, you know, right Mm -hmm. away. And we got buzzed Literally, I had a reef shark hit my OTS mask. Mm. Uh, It didn't see me until the last second. And, you know, I was right there next to Dr. Lee and we're like, okay, we're (laughs) gonna get out of here now. So uh, that was the final dive of the show, which was ironic. But yeah, it was uh, pretty exciting.
0: Yeah, Uh, people are always so quick to write off reef sharks in terms of like, oh, we want to see the big bad ones. But Honestly, some of the sketchiest experiences I've had, you know, all around the world, but particularly in, in areas where they might be sort of very locally habituated to some human activity um, can be some of the sketchiest for sure. Um, in where you were diving, do you see any adaptation from the reef sharks to things like boats pulling up to fishing lines in the water to um, to human activity? Um, I say that because like in, in Bahamas, uh, like the shoot we just did this year, we had one population of reef sharks that are very used to seeing feeding on the surface from tourist boats. So you splash a fin in that water and they'll be on it like that versus, you know, 20, 30 miles away and they're used to getting fed down below or seeing people on the reef and it's no big deal. You can swim around with them on the surface all day long, but I wouldn't be doing it at this other location, for example.
1: Totally. Yeah. You hit the nail on the head there, Luke. And, you know, places like the Bahamas, yeah. The reef sharks are accustomed, you know, they hear the boat, they're already circling before mm. you even drop anchor. However, the difference between a place like the reef sharks and Bahamas and the reef sharks and Turks is that the, in Turks and Caicos, they'll show up at the surface, you know, when you start putting bait in the water, but they're a lot more amped up and mm. they're genuinely excited because they're, they've never seen that before. You know, they're, they're not yeah. used to seeing bait. So they kind of think, oh my God, this is unbelievable. And they just start swimming super fast and erratic and, you know, buzzing the divers before we even got in. So we had to even calm down a couple of the dives before any of us jumped in because we had five or six reef sharks and they're only six, seven foot long. But, you know, if they're in an aggressive predatory mode, you jump in the water, you know, that might not be great. So we had to be careful.
0: Yeah, I mean, it speaks to the scarcity of the, the, you know, I would say foreign activity in the water, you know, with people, you know, not going there and baiting or bringing them in for them to be switched on into that predator mode, like right away, um, just kind of shows you what type of animal in the, the situation that they live in, um, which is pretty cool for us. Cause we know we can go get, you know, a good behavior right away, but you certainly have to be careful.
1: Totally. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm sure you've probably experienced the same thing if you've dove any remote atolls in the Pacific, when you totally. see a yeah. gray reef or a silver tip and the thing's super charged up and it's just because, you're completely
0: foreign to it. Oh yeah. Uh, I remember some like adding like Majuro, for example, where, you know, diving in places that do see dive boats, but they're typically not there for, you know, for sharks. And they're certainly not baiting like we were. And as soon as we put anything in the water, like, oh, <laughs> these things are charged. It was just, it was immediate. Um, it was kind of crazy.
1: You know, reef sharks, they're killers i mean let's just be honest they kill fish just like any other shark does and they have really sharp teeth they look kind of cute and you know really cute with their mouths closed or you don't see the teeth but um i can tell you for sure that they have very sharp teeth and you know you won't you won't suffer anything really you know traumatic from a reef shark bite but you know, you don't want to get bit by a reef shark
0: yeah so the uh the the tie-in with shark skin and sandra's work obviously makes a lot of sense, right? She's obviously very curious in anything to do with, you know, dermal layers. Um, Can you explain to people, uh, you know, the, the makeup of a shark's skin and why it's so interesting?
1: Sharks have very interesting skin patterns. They are dictated by the types of habitats they live in, by what kind of pace of life they have, if they're a fast shark or a slow shark, if they're a top predator. And if you zoom in on the skin of a shark, it will look like lots of little teeth, you know, in a kind of a sandpaper type, gritty formation. And the term is literally dermal denticles, which means, you know, skin teeth. So they have all these small little kind of keratinized, you know, um, calcified little teeth on their skin that help them swim through the water quickly. They reduce drag, they reduce the attachment of parasites to a certain extent, and it just makes them really, really efficient in the water. And even some of their skin is, you know, very thick to, you know, promote wound healing and, you know, avoid trauma from bites and things like that as well. So they have this really incredible skin pattern that they've, you know, obviously evolved. And um, anybody who's ever felt a shark, you know, if you feel it one way, it's, you know, it's still rough, but it's, you know, smoother than if you go the other way against the grain. And you can actually, you know, rip some of your own skin off if you rub up against a shark.
0: Yeah. Um, did the did the study of skin on this particular expedition tie into any of the research you're doing? Or is it more sort of like, let's teach people about, you know, this amazing property that sharks have?
1: It's Kind of a little bit of a combination because <laughs> all the time when we're doing our work or we're diving sharks, you know, we don't often zoom in on, you know, something like that, you know, really yeah. important part of their body. And, you know, when you really start looking at it, you realize that it's an incredibly important sort of gateway for their overall health and their ecology. And whether we're talking about remoras or cuts or lacerations or mating wounds, you know, these are really important things that these animals have to kind of go through and, and, you know, promote and survive. So, you know, it was really cool to kind of zoom in on that a little bit. Also learn from Sandra, you know, on some of her work and to look at some of the parallels between sharks and human skin, because sharks obviously came before humans did in terms of, you know, evolution. And, you know, it's very primitive, but you know, it's amazing because when we do procedures on sharks, like implanting tags or taking biopsies, they heal so much more quickly than, than humans do. And humans are a much more advanced species, you know, evolutionarily. So that was pretty exciting. And then, you know, she was able to help us, you know, collect some samples for our work and we were able to get some skin impressions as well, which was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah. I want to uh, show those skin impressions in just a sec, but one of the, um, One of the cool things I thought that you highlighted is uh, something that we don't see a lot of, at least in this context. You're talking about cleaning stations a lot and, you know, going and visiting these cleaning stations and seeing sort of that symbiotic relationship. Could you explain exactly what that is? Because usually when we see it, it's just as a filming opportunity. But you guys were there to see the actual process.
1: Sure. Yeah. Cleaning stations are a lot more common and widespread than you think in the Caribbean. And, you know, these sharks will kind of swim down right on top of the reef and it's sort of like ringing the dinner bell for, you know, all sorts of small fishes, whether we're talking about blennies or gobies or even bigger things like snapper or grouper, they will actually swim up to the shark and, you know, take a little uh, peck off of the skin to, you know, get a piece of algae or get a parasite or to just scrape off whatever type of debris might be there. So the cleaning stations are pretty widespread and it happens so quickly that, you know we often think about these cleaning stations you know from you know big blue chip productions you know where you have these big sharks that are just floating in, in the current and you know you have fish swimming through their mouth and their gills which does happen by the way but it's often a lot more simple than that it can be just a flyby, you know touch and go shark coming down mm. bumping off and you know it, it's it's a symbiotic relationship for sure the sharks don't go after you know those fish don't try to eat them because they are getting a service which is you know a free cleaning
0: you know, one of the uh, the interesting things we learned was uh, how researchers are taking skin samples from living sharks and letting them go about their day, but still getting the data. Let's check out that process.
1: Looks like we got a reef shark. Okay. Look at the shark suckers! Look at all these remorse. I mean... shark is secure. I'm going to need you just kind of watching the head and watching the surge, because yep. if it comes on the bow, we're in trouble. What? This is Alright, now we're ready for a skin impression. Alright, coming in behind you here. So we've got this dental
0: impression material here. It's a quick setting mold material. That's gonna allow us to study the dermal denticles of the shark skin. How long do you need to keep it on the shark for? About 30 seconds. We'll press it to the skin. Okay, Dr. Lee, so if you wanna press that to the skin, right there. So I'm interested in the in the implications of taking those impressions from the sharks. Can you walk us through the process of bringing in a shark, releasing it alive and healthy and happy, but also getting that data?
1: Sure. So the field that we're talking about here is called bioinspiration and This basically refers to when we as humans are inspired by other organisms and other species and we can, you know, create products or services or tools that are, you know, um, inspired by nature. So think about swimsuits, you know, they're sometimes modeled after sharks or airplanes, which also look like sharks, things like that. Uh, You even have, you know, uh, household cleaning activities and, and vacuum cleaners that, you know, are inspired by these animals. And, you know, it's pretty interesting what we were doing because one of the things about shark skin that's so, you know, legendary is that it it really does reduce drag and it doesn't, you know, animals and parasites don't attach to it. So when you think about human applications, things like surgeries and healing from surgeries, you know, maybe we can try and uh, mold bandages and gauze and, and post-surgical wraps and things like that around you know the properties that we see in shark skin maybe that will help humans heal up more quickly etc things like that so for the show we collaborated with a group called sharklet and they are you know really one of the pioneers in bioinspiration bio and, and materials from sharks and we in order to get those samples we needed to get really close to these animals so we had to actually tag a couple we caught them safely, we've done all the time, bring them to the side of the boat. And we have this, you know, really interesting kind of resin epoxy that you squirt out of this kind of caulk machine and you kind of put it right up to the shark skin and hold it for about a minute. And right after, you know, that impression is done, you pull it off and you can see this incredible, you know, symmetrical mosaic of, you know, teeth and notches and grooves and nooks and crannies that I was describing mm-hmm. earlier. And then they can bring that composite back to the lab and model different types of your materials after that. So it's, you know, pretty thrilling things. Also applications with the Navy and ships that are trying to reduce fouling or the attachment of algae and barnacles hmm. on ship hulls. That's I think one of the customers that the company is actually working with, so.
0: Yeah, that'd make a lot of sense. If you can make a ship hull that's less susceptible to all of that accumulation. I mean, imagine the fuel savings globally, just in that alone. I mean, that has a huge ecological impact. Um, was uh, You're obviously working with reef sharks. Is that uh, out of sort of convenience or is there something specific about their skin that, that lends to the research?
1: Sure. Well, we did reef sharks and nurse shark impressions on this show. And the company had never done a reef shark impression. So that was something that we were able to provide pretty easily. Um, obviously, convenience as well because they're very strong population of reef sharks in the, uh, in the waters off Turks. So reef sharks were an easy target for us, and we we're able to get two or three really great samples from them.
0: Mm. So, if uh, would it be as simple for somebody at home thinking about, all right, what would be the best skin for which purpose, if they were to look at, say, a nurse shark, which spends a lot of time being fairly benthic, somewhat sedentary, you know, kind of hanging out, versus, you know, a mako, which is just constantly going? What type of differences in the denticles would they see?
1: Sure. Nurse sharks have denticles that are a lot more uh, kind of rounder and kind of a uh, less sharp structure than something like a mako, which, you know, is designed for speed. And and those are going to be much smaller and kind of more tooth-like, sharp tooth-like. So like I said earlier, the ecology of these animals is embedded in virtually all aspects of the animal's bodies, even down to its skin. So yeah, there's different tool for every job and, um, nurse sharks don't need to move around very fast. Like you said, they spend a lot of time on the bottom just kind of chilling and and doing their thing. So uh, that's how they evolved. And um, it's it's fascinating to be able to see the differences between uh, these animals. And again, something like a nurse shark, which, you know, they don't get a lot of love, Mm. but I think they're really fascinating, you know, uh, species of shark for sure.
0: Yeah, they are. I'd like to see once once that sort of technology develops and everything else, it'd be cool to see coatings for you know, airplanes and cars and things like that just to reduce drag, make us go faster, come out of all these different types of sharks. And, you know, anything that we can do to make sharks more valuable to people, I think would be really cool. Uh, the, uh, one of the comments you made I found really interesting because it doesn't get talked about a lot. And I actually had to look up some of it myself. I was like, huh, what is the latest research on this? But you made a comment that uh, the sharks don't really have the, uh, the capacity to feel pain or perhaps, the, you know, the neural networks to feel pain. Uh, run us through that because I don't think people really understand it.
1: This is an area of great scientific debate. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's, you know, two sides of the coin. And obviously sharks are fish. Mm. And the, the debate is, can fish feel pain? And, you know, you have one camp that says no, you have one camp that says yes. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of ethics that are surrounding this debate, but when it comes down to pure physiology and neurophysiology, you know, what's inside the animal, sharks just don't have the receptors to feel pain. There are these uh, receptors in the brain called nociceptors, and they are the ones that code for feelings of pain in the neural network. And, you know, Fish don't have it, and sharks don't have it. So, you know, I am of the thought that sharks can't feel pain. Obviously, sharks are vertebrates because they have a backbone. There are other species of vertebrates that can feel pain. You know, birds. Um, you know, perhaps some species of you know reptiles can. Certainly, mammals can. Um, but you know, I I have seen you know how sharks respond to all sorts of different situations underwater, free swimming, being tagged, etc. And, you know, they're pretty tough animals. You know, Mm -hmm. I I don't think that they would be able to survive the way they do if they felt pain because they wouldn't take the risks that they need to take in order to be a successful top predator. And, um, you know, I've tagged, you know, lots of different mammal species, too. And, and, you know, and I've, you know, done that with deer and the response from a deer when you put you take a little clip of their skin is wildly different than when you take a clip from a shark um obviously you know there's some other differences there too but you know sharks do have reflexes they do have nerves so they can you know if you put a needle in to take a blood sample sometimes the shark will flick its tail but you know i don't think that's pain so Mm. um yeah an interesting tidbit for sure to to kind of share with people and the research is obviously still ongoing but uh, i think the vast majority of shark researchers uh you believe the same thing i do
0: yeah i mean uh i think i'd like to dive just a little more into that kind of distinction because you know, it's very clear from everything that we do, from tagging to whatever else, that sharks can feel an impact. So you, you put a tag into them, a spear into them, they'll flinch away from it, you'll see their muscles fire, they'll be able to do that. That makes sense that an animal wouldn't just be able to, you know, swim around numb to everything in this environment. That doesn't, doesn't make any su- uh, sense on a survival level. Um, but biologically, what would be the difference between that sensation and a pain sensation? Is it the, the longevity of it? The actual emotion attached to it? The response to it? Like what, how would we define that?
1: It's really all about response because yeah. you know it, it relates to the endocrine system, which is hormone regulation, and hormones dictate pretty much everything that every living organism on this planet does whether it's mating or being hungry or being aggressive or etc. cetera, or being lazy. And sharks have hormones. Um, but pain, you know, can sort of pain is designed to promote survival because if something hurts your body tells you, oh my gosh, this is really bad. You need to get away from it. And, you know, cause you might die. Um, and you know, sharks don't really seem to have that because they're at the top of the food chain and Um, it really comes down to that fight or flight response, you know? Um, So, I mean, I've seen sharks that have had entire piece of their body missing and they've recovered Um, entire gill rakers, you know, ripped off of white sharks off Guadalupe from mating events. And,
0: you
1: know, uh, if they, if that hurt, I guess that's the right word, you know, then would they still be able to feed? Would they still be able to do what they're doing? I don't know. I I don't think they would to be honest with you. So you know, they're so elemental uh, of a group of animals, you know, they really can be broken down to like the building blocks of life more than any other group of animal on the planet. So um, not to give them any, you know, not to discredit them, but I just really don't think they have the capacity to feel pain.
0: I'll uh, I'll never forget being underwater. This was probably 13, 14 years ago. Um, and I saw a, a tiger shark, fairly large tiger shark um, attack an anchor line. And don't know why I did it. But it managed to get itself pretty well wrapped in it. And its jaw was just snagged on this line and just kept pulling and pulling and pulling. And I actually tried to go up and, and release it from it. Um, but there was five of them in the water and they just wouldn't let me anywhere near it. Um, it was obviously the activity is going crazy and it was a pretty dynamic situation. Um, but I couldn't quite get up there to release it. And the, the shark broke its jaw. Like, it literally just, it went, like, I could hear it. It was like, <laughs> underwater. And it snapped off, like, a very, about a third of its jaw right here. And I just watched it happen in front of me. I'm like, oh, my God, what, what just happened? Did that thing just kill itself? And it, you know, that released it. It got away. And about half an hour later, it swam back around and started biting on a bait box. I'm like, dude, <laughs> look at your jaw. Shouldn't you be, like honestly a nurse or something like what and it didn't seem to phase it it shocked me and you know I was talking about it I was having the same conversation like could at the time I was kind of in the in the camp that maybe they could feel pain I wasn't really sure and it's just like I I don't know that we could have a more clear definition of that happening in front of us and it not showing an aversion to coming back and feeding when it clearly didn't probably need to I, I, I guess that for me kind of sums it up a little bit
1: totally i mean i've also seen similar situations where if a shark really wants to eat something it's not going to stop until the animal gets away you know sometimes it does but they don't stop and you know if those and they do have the capacity to learn sharks do Mm. by the way but you know if they learned that these things hurt them you know they probably wouldn't go after things like stingrays and, and other sharks you know whereas you look at you know land predators like wolves you know, what's are dogs and, and, and big cats and things like that, you know, they won't go after, you know, animals with horns if, yeah. if it's not the right situation because they know that they can die from that.
0: Yeah. I guess we just look straight at the, you know, their mating activity. Their, their brains might be slightly thinking a little bit differently at the time, but you got to imagine that if females were able to f- feel that much capacity of pain, the whole mating event would be just too uh, traumatic for them to really be involved in it whatsoever, right?
1: Exactly,
0: you just nailed it, yep. So uh, getting back to you know, the fun that you guys had out there, uh, there were a couple of dives that got a little bit sketchy, I think, <laughs> during the trip. I mean, most of it looked pretty chill, but there were a couple of moments that looked a little bit less than ideal. So there's a dive, it looked like uh, the tide was changing a little bit or, or something was happening and it went from you know, what we've all experienced where there's like great conditions and then suddenly everything changed. Take me through that and what you were thinking and having, you know, a guest down there with you.
1: There's this one area where this amazing channel where we know there are some of the biggest sharks and Turks and Caicos. And it's obviously very exposed to the incoming and outgoing tide because it's a channel. Mm. And it's the kind of sandy carbonate bank with very thin, silty sand. So when the tide goes out, um not so much in, but when the tide goes out, it pulls all of that you know surface layer of sand and silt, kind of brings it up and pulls it offshore. And then when it gets suspended in the top of the water and the mid-water column, it can be really hard to see. The visibility drops. So on this dive, we were trying to go down and, and get really close to some sharks and you know see if we could see some bigger individuals. And there were five, six, seven sharks on the surface before we got in. There were dolphins swimming around the boat. There was a lot of life there. We saw a manta ray. So it seemed like there was a lot of nutrients and energy getting pushed through this channel. So we hopped Mm -hmm. in and, you know, the visibility wasn't great. When we first jumped in probably about 40, 50 feet, we get down to the bottom. And like, right when we were descending down to about 50 feet down, you know, you could just see that we were going into like almost like a hydrogen sulfide layer of just cloud Mm -hmm. and dust. And we got down there and we had, we had some bait in the water. Um, so You know, we didn't know where the sharks were. That's the worst thing. You know, for for I think for me, when I go into the water with sharks, I want to see them at all times. I want to know where they are because if I can know where my surroundings are, then I can sort of you know act accordingly and try to have a little bit of a step up on the animals. If you can't, if if that makes any sense, when you can't see them, you know, makes it really kind of sketchy and scary. And you know, I think I probably have a a higher threshold for sketchy situations than other people. However. Mm Um, you know, sometimes ignorance is bliss. I don't know if Sandra knew how rough that situation was. Yeah. Uh, After five minutes, we're down there with Mark Rackley, one of our cameramen, and he's shaking this crate, and I can barely see him in the back. And, you know, I know that there were big predators down there. And, you know, like I said... (laughs) you know, all of a sudden one comes out of the reef from below us and right through the two of us, which was, you know, horrible. Mm. And I said, let's get out of here. You know, I can't see anything. I was talking to her on the face mask. Let's get out of here and abort. And they're like, no, try to stay for a couple more minutes. See if the silt will clear out. It didn't, uh, it got worse. And we just said, okay, it's time to abort the dive. She actually was very chill. She did a great job. Obviously we were kind of holding hands there, uh, locked shoulders, but, um, you know, that's the situation you don't want to be in because mm. when the odds are stacked in the favor of the sharks, then you you really are, it, you just don't know what they're going to do. And they want to have the advantage on you. And look, those sharks weren't trying to eat us, but they were definitely asserting themselves. And we were in between them and the bait. And, yeah. you know, you don't want to get in between animals and bait.
0: Yeah. Especially when Mark Rackley's ha- handling the bait crate.
1: <laughs> He's an animal. Love the guy. A lot of and, Oh my gosh. He's so awesome. And he's just an incredible storyteller and he knows animals so well. And, you know, he's, he's still a human, but when you're in the water with that guy, you, you have this kind of sense of security, which is it real? Is it not real? But it definitely helps alleviate some of those situations.
0: Yeah. Well, perhaps that's a ignorance or more knowledge is bliss, but whatever that guy does, it's amazing. I've loved bringing him out before. So good to see him on your team. But, uh, so you're back home now, what's next for you? What's your next research, next trip? What's exciting in your world?
1: Tomorrow I'm actually heading to Italy to go search for white sharks in the Mediterranean. This okay. Is the first time that this has ever been attempted from like a scientific standpoint. So I'm joining a team of Italian researchers and American researchers that are already over there right mm-hmm. now. And they've been studying white sharks in the Mediterranean uh, from like historical records and modeling where they're found off of the coast of Italy. Yeah. And there's just one channel right there where it seems to be, you know, a really big kind of bottleneck for a lot of these big white sharks. In fact, some of the biggest white sharks ever around seven meters, you know, that's like over 20 feet, uh, have been found in the Mediterranean and it's a very overfished body of water. Mm. So uh, I'm going over there to sort of help the team document and discover and, and find where these animals may be. It's a project that is part and part supported by discovery channel and the explorers club. So I'm thrilled to, for the first time, you know, extend my own personal research into a new uh, body of water and, you know, hopefully, you know, make history and find some, you know, amazing white sharks.
0: That sounds amazing. What's the, the ultimate goal there? Is it to tag them, figure out where they're going? Are you trying to uh, establish a new population?
1: Yeah, kind of, the, kind of both. It's really just put the species on the map biologically. You know, mm. obviously we, we want to, we know they're there. We're not the first to know that they're there, you know. Aristotle knew that they were there, but nobody's ever, you know, tracked their movements. Nobody has ever looked at their genetics. Uh, there's been very little work in terms of, you know, the spatial needs that these animals have, they are protected in the Mediterranean, but, um, you know, they are often caught by, you know, tuna fishermen and and these big nets off of Northern Africa. And, you know, it's a really slow growing animal. So, uh, it's really important for us to, you know, better protect and manage the species to actually get some data. So, you know, the ultimate goal is, is certainly to kind of understand where they spend their time, but, you know, to just start establishing some information on the population would be a really great step, whether we, you know, get them on a BRUV, which is an underwater camera, yeah. or we could detect them with water samples and eDNA, environmental DNA samples, drone surveys. And this is obviously the beginning of hopefully a long-term research project. And, um, it would be really exciting to actually gather some information on this population because, you know, we know white sharks are found in the Mediterranean, but that's about all we know.
0: Yeah. Well, good luck with that, mate. I know you're headed out tomorrow, right? So thanks so much for your time with us today. It's uh, really appreciated.
1: My pleasure, Luke. Always love you know, jumping on this, this show. And I'm um, you know, really excited to see all the great shows on Shark Week this year and, and see all the new discoveries that people are making.
0: Awesome, mate. Well, good luck in the med. And everyone at home? That's your Daily Bite. Thanks so much for joining us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll see you on the next Daily Bite. Happy Shark Week.